bam, that brought true meaning to people for bringing up so much aggression, so much pleasure, so much hatred, so much blood, so much tears, so much wisdom. This band brought it. It's pretty serious. Could you describe a typical Slayer fan? Slayer fan. A typical. A guy just would literally out of nowhere just yell, Slayer! You know, just, and go and, and, you know, and, and when you see a friend walking down the street and you see that guy's wearing a Slayer shirt too, you know, you can literally, you, you know, you know, you can deal, you know. You know what? You know that you're thinking, you know, you know. Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we will be looking at issue number 499, June the 18th, 1994, pence, only one issue away from 500 issues of Kerrang! How have they got to 500 issues? I mean, the question of that is probably the same as how have I got up to about 24, <laughs> 24 podcasts? Who bloody knows? This week, uh, I mean, it's a couple of weeks after Donington, but Kerrang! are going to milk Donington for as much as they can get. So this week, there's a 20-page poster pullout. 20 pages is quite excessive. It's usually eight. Uh, and there's a load of letters in the letter page from Kerrang! readers talking about the great times they had at Donington. Anyway, cover stars for this week are Slayer. Eating animals for breakfast. Slayer. Chilling studio exclusive. Black Crows, Drug Orgy, Biohazard Riot, The Truth, Alice Cooper, 400 years old and still rocking, Stone Temple Pilots, Success, Pearl Jam and US, Extreme, What the Hell is Going On, the Donington 20 page poster pullout that I already mentioned, and Metallica, US Live Special. If you would like to get in contact with us here, then you can uh, get us on Instagram at Kerrang Back Issues. If you want to tweet us, you can send a tweet to Kerrang Pod. And if you would like to send us an email, you can email us at kerrangbackissues at gmail.com. This issue is packed, so let's jump straight into it, starting with uh, Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first. And what a brilliant first news story Kerrang have gone for this week. Black Crows hosted a wild free-for-all at a party in Los Angeles last week. The US superstars, currently working on their third album, took a break from the studio to record a news clip for MTV. But the party was so outrageous that frontman Chris Robinson and co banned their own video footage. Now there's talk that the no-holds-barred film will be released as an adults-only home video. The band, who've previously caused controversy by incorporating a cannabis leaf logo on their stage backdrop, invited 200 friends and fellow musicians to the secret psychedelic video shoot and party. One insider said it quickly lapsed into a cross between the Rolling Stones' unreleased 60s TV show Rock and Roll Circus and the outrageous Russ Mayer film Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. 
Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash is rumoured to be making a special appearance at next week's Gibson Guitars Centenary concert. The superstar Axeman is reported to have said that he wants to play at the Milestone event and that if Aerosmith guitarist Joe Perry were to do it, he would definitely be there. Joe Perry is understood to have said the same. Stock press. Metallica have officially been confirmed to play at the Woodstock 2 festival taking place in New York on August the 13th. Other bands set to join him include Alice in Chains and Red Hot Chili Peppers. More news soon. Porno for Pyro's frontman Perry Farrell, the enigmatic ex-Jane's Addiction star, has banned Ford Motor Company from using the word Lollapalooza in its advertisements. Farrell owns the rights to the word and after a brief legal battle successfully made Ford withdraw it from US ads. A spokesman told Mayhem that the matter had been amicably resolved with Ford making an undisclosed donation to a rainforest charity at Farrell's request. Bon Jovi are currently in the studio working on their sixth album. The band are said to be progressing at an alarming rate and could have the record completed this summer. Record releases and Extreme have put the release of their new single on hold while they have a rethink. The troubled Boston superstars were poised to release There Is No God This Autumn, but now after controversially pulling out of a long-anticipated UK club tour, say they're unsure if it is the track they should release. Their as yet untitled album has also been put on hold until the end of the year, despite reports that it was completed and as good as ready for release some months ago. Extreme guitarist Nuno Betancourt spoke to Mayhem to discuss just, just what is going on. The album's done, but since our new drummer Mike Mangini has been in the picture, we've written a few new songs, says Nuno. So who knows if those are going to wind up on the record now. Mangini could make his recording debut on the forthcoming album. Absolutely. We wrote some really cool songs with him. It's a new vibe. I've known Mike for 12 years. When we did our first show with him, we just felt the energy. He belongs here. Machine Head, hot new power drilling metalers from Oakland, California have completed work on their debut album. Entitled Burn My Eyes, it will be released on August the 9th through Roadrunner and features the following tracks. The video and older Thousand Lies Number, My Own Race to Overcome, Death Church, The Nation on Fire, Blood for Blood, I'm Your God Now, Realize, Block. I always wanted Machine Head to be super, super heavy, says 26-year-old vocalist guitarist Rob Flynn, but without any boundaries imposed on it. I wanted to be able to play whatever and to be able to express emotion through the music, whether it's anger, hate, sorrow or loss. Some of the songs are about personal experiences from when I was growing up in Oakland. Drugs, gangs, guns, you can get sucked into that shit, but you have to stand your own ground eventually. The album title, Burn My Eyes, however, has a specific relevance. The American media sometimes take things and blow them way out of proportion in doing so. Reporting the news causes more of a problem by making people aware of it. The LA riots are the biggest example I can use. When they broke out, all you saw on any channel for three days straight were the Rodney King and Reginald Denny beatings. No wonder so many people rioted. Those kind people at Roadrunner Records have offered Kerrang a whopping 200 copies of the ultra-rare five-track demo that got Machine Head their deal. All you have to do for a chance of getting your mitts on one of what is sure to become a top collector's item is write with your name and address to Roadrunner at Sweet WNT Tech West Centre, 10 Warport Way, Acton, London, W3OUL. The first 200 names out of the bag will win a copy of the tape. Aerosmith follow up their Donington Monsters of Rock Festival performance with a new single through Geffen on June 20th. Entitled Shut Up and Dance, it is lifted from the Boston Superstars' latest album, Get a Grip, and is available on limited edition 7-inch gatefold, cassette single and CD single. A second CD single will be released on June 27th. 
The Wild Hearts have put back the release date of their new single Sucker Punch to June 27th. The track is currently on release in America where it is the band's debut single. The video for the song shot at London Kentish Town Forum in March has recently been aired for the first time on US MTV. Biohazard released a new single through Warner Brothers on June 27th entitled Tales from the Hard Side. It's lifted from their acclaimed new album State of the World Address. B-sides and formats have still to be confirmed. Tour news and Blind Melon returned to the UK this month for two shows. The quintet whose self-titled debut album has sold more than 2 million copies in the States played London Kentish Town Forum June 21st and Glastonbury Festival 24th. Speaking from his newly acquired home in New Orleans, guitarist Roger Stevens opines, I'm looking forward to checking Glastonbury out, even though I don't know who's playing with us or anything. Rage Against the Machine have lined up two more festival dates to complement their Glastonbury show. They played the Tea in the Park Festival, also set to feature Manic Street Preachers and Gun in Glasgow on July 30th and the File Festival in Tipperary the following day. At each of these three shows, likely to be Rage Against the Machine's only UK live dates this year, the band set will include four or five new songs which will appear on the LA Rap Metalers' next album. Also on the festival front, Therapy have now been confirmed to play on the Sunday night of the Phoenix Festival. Now, uh, very often when I'm recording this podcast, uh, I'll read about something and I'll go and uh, see if it's available on YouTube. So I looked up uh, Raging the Machine at Glastonbury Festival and I found this incredible video of them that I'd never actually seen before, of them playing Know Your Enemy at Glastonbury in 94 with Maynard James Keenan from Tool singing, uh, singing his part on the song. Absolutely brilliant. Um, it happens quite a lot recording this podcast that... I'll, I'll, I'll be re- reading something, reading something out, and then I'll just get, have to go off and like either find a song or um, find a video or something. I mean, what is like an hour-long podcast? <laughs> Sometimes it takes me about three hours or four hours to record because I'm just going off my own little world, just just looking out and f- like finding all this stuff that I never actually have seen before. So it's it's just brilliant for my own personal um, self gratifications. Is that the right word? Self gratification? Whatever you want to say my own personal um just love of of this kind of music it's just brilliant i absolutely love it go find that video if you can brilliant it's coast to coast the hottest u.s news as it happens Last week, we obviously couldn't be with Don K in New York um, because I cut something out of my Kerrang. Whoops. Uh, this week, we're with Lisa Johnson in Los Angeles. In between headlining festivals in Europe, members of Rage Against the Machine can be spotted checking out live music in their hometown of LA. Guitarist Tom Morello can usually be found at any Stanford Prison Experiment show. Singer Zach De La Russia was at The Offspring's most recent whiskey gig. Bassist Timmy C was spotted at a small club where label mates Mother Tongue grooved. And drummer Brad Wilk usually enjoys going to see Greta, the band he ditched when he hooked up with Rage. Uh, Regents Machine are still writing songs for the highly anticipated follow-up to their self-titled debut and will probably enter the studio soon. Meanwhile, if you need a fix of Rage, check out the soundtrack for The Crow, which recently hit the number one spot in the US albums chart. A fabulous new club has popped up in Hollywood called Sellout. Every Tuesday, Sellout is put on by some dissatisfied members of the struggling unsigned band Green Thumb. So far, the club is battling a thousand with its live guests. When Thelonious Monster was scheduled to play, it was really a guise for an unannounced surprise set by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. 
The Peppers played some old songs, a few new songs and some covers. According to one dishevelled promoter, probably too busy counting money or passing out a few drinks to take note. This was not the Peppers' only surprise gig either. A few days before the sellout show, the band jumped on stage at the Viper Room and ran through four songs. Word on the addition of Dave Navarro, thumbs up. Anyone who caught Navarro jamming with the Peppers said he shreds. Cool. The band ended at the North Californian studio last week to record Finally, their follow-up to 91's Blood Sugar Sex Magic album. More news on that as it breaks. Legendary punkers, the Circle Jerks, have gotten back together. Since breaking up two and a half years ago, lead singer Keith Morris has been leading a non-rock and roll life in Virginia. Guitarist Greg Hetzam works full-time on Bad Religion and has gotten married, congratulations, and uh, another Circle Jerker is a big-time accountant. He files tax papers for all my industry friends. The Circle Jerks played their debut reunion show at Sellout, surprise, surprise. All of a sudden, the usual club-going, laid-back LA singsters were slamming to the oldies. Rock critic and club promoter himself, Jack Zinder, had this to say about the show in the LA Weekly. They never came off like a revival act. They sounded like they meant it, man, which is the very best you can hope for. Even though Keith Morris once told me Jägermeister was made with Elk's blood, we wish the Circle Jerks' reunion the best. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Concerts now, and we begin with a concerts extra. Extra spell X-T-R-A. Obviously, Karen can never spell anything correctly. Um, concerts extra is basically just a live review that's a little bit longer than usual. So, this piece is Metallica, Danzig, and Suicidal Tendencies live at the Jones, Jones Beach Theatre, Long Island, New York, on Wednesday, June the 6th. This review is by Don Kay. And this gets a high voltage out of five, four out of five. Attention concert goers, please stay in your nice little seats. Fuck you. The voice and attitude is instantly recognisable. And as the last strains of the boys are back in town fade from the PA, you can almost see the grin on James Hetfield's face. The boys are indeed back in town, bored with their vacation. Metallica have come round again, playing outdoor venues on a summer excursion with absolutely nothing new to promote. Very few bands can take to the road these days without a new album to support and all of the hype surrounding it, let alone pack out venues easily. The fact that Metallica can do this is a continuing testament to their status as the biggest hard rock act of the 90s. Still, their desire to play notwithstanding, there were elements of Metallica's show that left the onlooker a little uneasy. The two opening acts, longtime favourites of the Metallica clan, deliver performances indicative of their respective fortunes. Suicidal tendencies begin in somewhat disjointed fashion and clearly suffer from the worst sound of the evening. The volume of Mike Muir's voice shoots up and down throughout the set with levels for the rest of the instruments equally unsteady. That suicidal can play well is established beyond doubt, but it's telling that only the older material leaves a lasting impression. How Can I Love Tomorrow is the best number of the set, while the new single, uh, Suic Psycho Motherfucker, sounds like the toss-off that it is. At this point, Suicidal Tendencies look like a band doomed to opening that status for the rest of their career. Danzig face a different problem, and overcome it by sheer strength of purpose. Although Mother has become a giant hit in the States more than six years after its original release, it's still the only song that many in the audience tonight actually know them by. The crowd roar for that number, fourth in the set. Glad you finally woke up, sneers Glenn as they settle into polite appreciation for the rest of the set. Nevertheless, Danzig are fiery tonight. The quartet played like a seamless, sizzling machine. John Christ's macabre riffs becoming a dominant force. Snakes of Christ... Her Black Wings, Twist of Cain and a ferocious Long Way Back From Hell are the highlights of a superb set. Glenn is his usual self, 
Way too serious and brooding, but his vocals are dead on and intense, as is the whole band. With no fancy staging, just lots of pyro and volume, Metallica quickly show that their year-long layoff hasn't rusted their metal gears. As James peels off the opening riff to Breadfan, only this could open with a cover tune and uh, still have the entire crowd singing along. It's clearer than ever that Metallica live for the road. We missed you, Hetfield shouts to the adoring throng. Did you miss us? Their vigour, bluster and chemistry is very evident. What's not so evident is the band's appetite for taking chances. The night contained two big surprises, The God That Failed, one of the Metallica album's heaviest yet most emotional moments, it's based on James's personal experiences growing up with Christian scientist parents, is a welcome addition to the set. While Disposable Heroes hasn't been aired live in these parts for literally years, there's also a new medley. The Justice collage has been ejected in favour of an assemblage of bits of old, old tunes including The Four Horsemen, Ride the Lightning, Fight Fire with Fire, No Remorse and Phantom Lord. It's obvious from the audience's fanatical reaction to even snippets of these songs that Metallica could play them all in their entirety and devastate everyone. But instead we get For Whom the Bell Tolls, Creeping Death, Harvester of Sorrow, Welcome Home and Seek and Destroy one more time. As great as these songs and the band play them with conviction, it may be time to retire them in favour of other forgotten gems. Even James seems to acknowledge the predictability of large chunks of the set. When introducing Jason Newstead as lead vocalist on Seek, he says, This is a brand new song. That Metallica play the same old songs like they mean it is a tribute to their high standards. Although the sound is iffy earlier on, drowning out the vocals, it soon stabilises into an overpowering juggernaut. On encores, Sad But True and Enter Sandman, Metallica lock into a groove so colossal that few bands could hope to match it. So What brings the 135 minute show to a chaotic close and the band spend an additional 10 minutes waving to the crowd, throwing them souvenirs and greeting lucky fans down the front. Metallica clearly have several issues to deal with now. They face the task of following up a monumental album when they hit the studio sometime late this year or early in 95, and they do need to rethink certain aspects of their live show before the next time they tour. But if anyone thinks that Metallica have spent their time off getting fat and lazy, they'd better think again. The boys are back, and it's just like they never went away. This next review is for Green Day at the Astoria 2 London on Monday, June the 6th. This review is by Claire Douse, and this gets a uh, this gets a static out of 5, which is a 3 out of 5. It's a steal. Gotta be. How else could three nerdy-looking Californian agro-punksters so perfectly emulate the snot-nosed post-punk guitar crunch which the likes of Snuff and Senseless Things were first gobbing out in salubrious joints like the George Roby way back in 1988? Green Day are the latest in a long line of pretenders to the Yank punk crown, and with the might of reprised records behind them on both sides of the Atlantic, they look like being, beating superior contemporaries like SNFU to the winning post. The set flashes by at the speed of light, each two-fingered free-call burst of energy crackling with verve and electricity. And Green Day certainly have got some corking tunes to choose from. New single Longview has a chorus that keeps itching at you like chicken pox, while Welcome to Paradise showcases vocalist Billy Joe's cod cockney vocal tones and hurtles along on the back of Mike Durnt's bass powerhouse. But hang on, isn't punk rock supposed to be about spontaneity? About doing your own thing your own way and not giving a fuck? So why have Green Day all uniformly peroxide their hair, looking like a set of cross-eyed triplets? And why are their stage moves and trouser-splitting scissor jumps as perfectly timed as a pan-people routine? Even the tongue-wagging and face-pulling seems contrived. Punk isn't supposed to be rehearsed. Fun for three minutes, Green Day begin to pow after 30. By the end, it feels like having to babysit your baby brother on a Saturday night when your best mate's throwing a party. 
Next, we have a review for the Rockin' Ream Festival, which is held at the Old Airport Munich on Sunday, May 22nd. This review is by Chris Watts, and the review of this festival gets a static out of five, which is a three out of five. The European festival crowd knows how to drink beer. A group of festival backpackers have begun experimenting with a huge plastic funnel. They start waving a hose around their heads, and one of them is looking at me in a funny way. It looks like the set of a porn movie. The situation is saved by three skydivers parachuting into a nearby field. One of the backpackers pukes the beer back into the funnel. Apparently this is some sort of European festival rite of passage. A man stands outside the 4,000 capacity beer tent. He juggles four oranges and looks like Jesus. There are still five hours to go before a forklift truck will try and drive through the crowd during Soul Asylum's set. By then, 45,000 people would have been drenched by the intermittent showers, baked by the warm spring sun, and have cramps from their journey to the surface of this EEC lager lake. And then Aerosmith will be on stage, and none of it will matter anymore. European festivals uh, such as Rockin' Ream are desperate to be seen as a cultural force to be reckoned with, and not just as a baby relation to Donington. Rockin' Ream is remarkable for the fact that the lineup does not feature one single cruddy German act to spoil the day, except Nina Hagen. In fact, Rockin' Ream has rolled over and allowed itself to be tickled by an impressive array of diverse Anglo-American gunslingers. It is organised, and then some, by an endless procession of middle-aged Undermensch and Marine Corps security teams. It is also in the middle of fucking nowhere and the food sucks. Extreme simply do not work. A colourless set fail falls flat on its gumby bum and even get the funk out fails to provoke any audible response. They are hopeless. The promoter holds a press conference. His audience of smug Euro journos listen obediently and applaud loudly. He tells us all to enjoy the day with a look on his face that suggests he will shoot us if we don't. Paradise Lost are a much needed amphetamine. This is the first and last real heavy metal band you'll see on this stage today, Rolls Nick Holmes. The mob punch the air and crank up their air guitars. Nick Holmes is not kidding. Paradise Lost are huge here. They sell more records than Metallica and get into the Screamager mags alongside Take That. Paradise Lost are terrible pop stars, but as an exercise in hefty metal drama, they are intense and unstoppable. The crystal blue skies and the sheer scale of Rockin' Ream does not suit Paradise Lost. They belong indoors, away from the distractions of a festival. Despite the best efforts of the lighting gantry and the PA, this is not the total Paradise Lost experience. It doesn't prevent Holmes from leaning out into the crowd and skewering these disciples with As I Die. The trad metal contingent are sated. Alongside your hand in mine, it is proof that Paradise Lost have the depth and the shade to eventually check into the heavy metal Hilton. Therapy sound like an ocean liner plowing through a sea of scrap metal. It's a devastating performance. The video screen flashes up images of Andy Kent pogoing through the vicious set of perfect, feel-good power metal. Later, Andy will sit in the band's caravan and work on his Donington stage spiel. Business as usual in the therapy camp. It is getting dark. It is also getting damp. A seven-strong motorcade of stretch limousines arrives backstage. A solitary sex kitten adjusts her minuscule skirt and tries in vain to get past the headliner's security army. Paradise Lost laugh. In the midst of this backstage circus, Soul Asylum slip out onto the stage. For such a sly and emotive band, it turns to be, uh, out to be a lacklustre performance. The set is ballad biased and sounds tired. Even Runaway Train sounds like Hotel California. It's nonetheless greeted by the crowd like the best song ever written. Only cartoon and somebody to shove rise above the mediocre. And that is a waste of a gig. Soul Asylum's great strengths, Perna's world-weary lyrics, stripped-down arrangements and Grant Young's piercing guitar sound sapped. It's not a disaster as a warm-up for Aerosmith. Soul Asylum can claim a transparent victory. The rain is sheeting down. 
you will have read about Aerosmith's antics by now. They are simply the consummate festival performers. No one could argue that Steven Tyler was not the star of Rockin' Ring, except Andy Cairns. Gloves off. From the taxi rank on the other side of the planet, Rockin' Ream is lit up like a huge wedding cake. You can hear Dream On drifting on the wind. Anyone fancy a beer? This next piece in Kerrang! is called Violet Mood Swings. Purple is the new album that has saved Stone Temple Pilots' lives. Before they recorded it, the band were breaking apart under the strain of mega platinum success. Now they're happy, so long as Mike Peake doesn't mention Pearl Jam. In the United States, where sales figures of successful albums read like telephone numbers, Stone Temple Pilots' debut core has outsold Nirvana's In Utero. In fact, it sold more copies than Alice in Chains' Dirt and Radiance Machine's eponymous debut put together. Stone Temple Pilots are huge. For singer Scott Weiland, drummer Eric Kretz and brothers Robert and Dean DeLeo on bass and guitar, Core was a twisted, mind-blowing fairy story. It brought them incredible success but also mental and physical illness. Now, as they release their second album, Purple, the San Diego and the Four Piece are taking a step back from the overbearing corporate rock machine. They've actually started to enjoy life. The Stone Temple Pilots' story is not a particularly happy one. On the roof of East West Records' London offices, Wyland and Eric are posing for pictures. Eric is quiet, softly spoken, almost anonymous. He likes it that way. It is Wyland and always will be Wyland that catches everyone's attention and he knows it. I get all the adoration but I also get that with the slagging, he says. I'm the one with the big mouth. Decked out in a heavy leather jacket, loud red shirt and token grunge hat, Wyland is all suntan and goatee beard, a brooding anti-star with a thinly veiled lack of patience. He hardly smiles and he speaks loudly and with authority, but he is not unlikable. Do they serve cream of some young guy, cracks Eric later as Ian Wayland skim through the takeaway menu of a local Chinese. The designated interview room in the East West building has turned canteen for Eric and Scott's impending lunch. Talking to journalists is not my favourite thing to do because I really have a lack of trust, says Wyland, with more than a hint of distaste. I can't generalise completely, but I think for the most part, the rock press is made up of bottom feeders that feed off the weakness of people and pull individuals apart for basically writing songs. We've definitely had a raw deal at the hands of the press. People can't say that we're a bad band, but I've truly tried to find where the rationale is with, with all the fucking Pearl Jam comparisons. Not to discredit them, but to me Pearl Jam are a good classic rock band. I don't think they do anything that's very innovative or groundbreaking. I think they write good songs, but I think their approach and influences in the realms of rock and roll are completely different from what our take is. That's why I have such a hard time stomaching those comparisons. I really don't have time to discuss it at length, he ends decisively, propping his feet up on an empty chair. Eric. It sucks that a lot of the articles don't even fucking write about the music. They talk about everything else but that. I don't understand it. I mean, we're a band. We play music. Wyland. Luckily, people that are rock fans make up their own minds. If they didn't, we wouldn't be as successful as we are. And ultimately, that's what matters most. People that are affected by music are affected for innocent reasons because something makes them feel something. Whether it inspires them to fuck, whether it inspires them to cry, those are human emotions. People in the industry, for the most part, have a vested interest in whether something sells and whether they have a part in making an artist a, su a success. A lot of people who don't have their hand in making the success then have a certain disdain because their ego wasn't stroked in the making of somebody. Imagine being catapulted into a situation where your face is on the cover of national magazines, where your video is on ultra high rotation on MTV, where you're playing to 5,000 people every night. It's something that needs to be experienced and to be believed. And the sudden success of Stone Temple Pilots was nearly, uh, very nearly destroyed the band. Wyland. 
It's not that we didn't want success. As a young child, you grow up wanting to be a rock star and seeing this image of what a rock star is, that you achieve this level of sanctuary, happiness, peace and content. And there's nothing that prepares you for what it realistically is, because to show the honest side of it would not make it very appealing to the people they're trying to sell this image to. I don't think we were prepared for what that entailed at the time. And because we were so busy touring and being wrapped up in press and shit, we never had the chance to figure out where we were at as people. So when we went through certain personal traumas, we were so wrapped up in what we were doing that we didn't have a chance to figure out the changes we were going through. Eric. We were thrown into this strange reality. It was like going to Disneyland, but being a character and having to dress up as Mickey Mouse, it's just completely weird. Wyland. I think we fought it and tried to say we didn't feel like puppets, but once we realised we had become that way, and what we were doing wasn't fun like we had always expected, you don't want to deal with that reality, so you try and find a way to escape from that. But that pulls you further away from the band and from yourself. So you hate the whole rock star scenario, Wyland. I love success. I like the fact that there are a lot of people out there that are touched emotionally by the music we wrote. You create something that's honest and a piece of your soul, and you're very vulnerable naked. When you get letters from fans saying a certain song affected them in a certain way, that's amazing. But for every rewarding element, there's an equally unrewarding one. How important is money, Wyland? Money isn't really an issue. That's all relative. There's security in the fact that we can own a, own a home, but that's it. I spend more money eating out than I used to, but I still buy pants and shirts for $1.25. There's other elements of success that are far more confusing, like the idea of celebrity. That's such a misconception. Unfortunately, the public, because of conditioning, feel that a public person is always a public person and that you have those responsibilities to other people because you influence them. I don't think any of us ask for that. The only thing that we feel ultimately responsible to is music. People want a piece of you, but only because they're trained to think that way. Eric, it even goes as far as your family. It goes that deep. Wyland, you go visit your folks at Christmas and they have stacks of photos and posters for you to sign for friends and friends of friends and friends' children's friends. And it's the same with our friends. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when you haven't seen your closest friends because you've been on tour and you come back and for the first hour and a half you're stuck talking about what the next single's gonna be, how many million records you've sold. All you really want to talk about is anything but that. Stone Temple Pilots have matured during those turbulent past two years and Purple is an astonishing introspective LP. Wyland, making this record was like a second life. It gave us a feeling of resurrection. Eric, the first week of rehearsal was just ridiculous. We were just thinking too much, being overwhelmed by what had gone on during the past two years and looking at all the fucking shit we've got to go through again. I, f I think we tried to fight that pressure of success's uh, cliche, but we didn't really deal with it until we were cancelling tours because individually we were falling apart. Now we can stand back, regroup and start living. As a band, we were not very close. It's amazing we made the album we made with Purple, although it was probably enhanced by the personal problems that affected our relationship. There was something positive that came out of the negativity. It's easy to backtrack now and realise what the hell was going on. We recorded Purple a week and a half quicker than we did Core. Now we're realising what goes on and how things work and we're accepting it. The last two years we were trying to deny it and trying to say this is bullshit. Why does it have to be this way? But you can't change the world. Wayland. It's all just seemed to work out for some reason. Purple was very therapeutic and it saved the band. And probably saved our lives. Now we're at last starting to get a grip on everything and feel more able to put things in perspective. I think we might actually start enjoying it now. If all goes to plan, the rest of 1994 should be rather special for Stone Temple Pilots, especially Wyland who is getting married in September and who smiles affectionately when talking about his fiance. Purple is one big fuck you of a record that should silence any remaining critics. It's not a Pearl Jam LP, nor is it a generic flannel by numbers grunge. So armed, what would the pilots now say to anyone who has ever dismissed them? Wyland, 
People should learn to think for themselves and to not follow other people's wishes to influence. I guess that's it really. I can't try to influence people to think a certain way or to see us in a certain way. I would just hope that people actually listen. Just listen. Eric, simple as that. Just fucking listen. And with those words, the cream of some young guy arrives. Communication now, and there are letters, lots of letters written in about Donington, but we will get to those in a moment. First, we will start with Letter of the Week. Having just watched the programme Fine Cut, June 4th, BBC2, concerning the court case in America over the suicide allegedly incited by a Judas Priest lyric, I felt I had to air my views. The self-righteousness, arrogance and hypocrisy of the people who brought this case about defies belief. No one can deny the parents of the dead youth their grief and rage over their loss, but the notion that a lyric in any song can incite suicide only indicates gross stupidity. Only the briefest of glances at the boys' lifestyles make it clear that the young, two youngsters were disturbed types. It's sickening to hear people attempt to unload their own guilt and failure onto music. It's also pathetic. Heavy metal needs to reassert itself and take a renewed stance against the twin demons of intolerance and censorship. It's important to remember that only 35 years ago, even Elvis was uh, thought of as evil by the holier than now brigade. What's needed is an extensive and publicised debate to actively make people understand and learn. Beavis from Sunderland. A serious point that can't be made too often. You win the letter of the week, special prize mate, editor. This is just a letter to thank Pride and Glory for putting on the most excellent show at the Underworld in London. These guys fucking rocked. From Zach Wilde's amazing introductory solo all the way to the brilliantly heavy set closer Mother Mary, I was astounded. Being both a Sabbath and Aussie fan, you can't imagine how big the grin on my face was when they played War Pigs. I had a fucking great night out. The beer flowed, the sweat poured and there were smiles all round. This is a big sincere thank you going out to Brian, Zach and James and I wish you all the best luck for the future. You really did make me proud. Cheers. Bean from Tatsfield. What is the matter with English rock fans? At the recent rock final of Sussex's Battle of the Band, the audience vote, which came after the judges had conferred, tipped the balance in favour of a band which mostly played covers of well-known rock songs. I've nothing personal against the band involved, but surely the future of British rock cannot lie with a band who cannot succeed on the strength of their own material. Passion Street and Burn, the excellent second and third place bands, played their own songs with a high standard of musicianship, yet they were ignored by an audience voting for songs they'd heard before. Next time you have a chance to make a difference to the music scene, please vote with your heads, not some other part of your anatomy. Otherwise, what chance does British rock have? Kate from Brighton. I, like hundreds of Sepultura fans, turned up to meet the band on June the 2nd at Tower Records in London. The queue stretched for miles. And although I'm sure that this goes without saying, I'd like to thank the band for just being there and signing stuff, and refusing to go home until they had seen everyone who came to see them. I'd also like to thank Kerrang! and Tower Records for making this an excellent event. It was definitely worth the six hour wait. Rosh from Dartford. Uh, funny, uh, funny thing about that, I was in London that day with my oldest mate Spencer, and we actually went to the Tower Records. Um, yeah, I guess we were 13 at the time. Um, yeah, we went, we saw the queue basically going all the way down Regent Street. Um, because we were young. I mean, we were 13 wandering out around London on their own. Because we were young, we just didn't really think it was uh, right to queue up for hours and hours and hours. Uh, I, 
obviously regret it now. But I mean, being that young, I think we both had to be home for dinner. So so it didn't happen. Anyway, moving back to the uh, communication. Gagging for a shagging. Please, please print a picture of Billy from Biohazard. After seeing the photo you printed with a recent live review, I'm in lust. Sarah from Worcester. I see that in a last ditch attempt to get some sex appeal, Marillion got a girl to throw her bra at them as they played Hammersmith Apollo on May the 18th. The ruse fell flat when the band tried to ignore it, so she went back and asked for it back. At least it gave me and my mates a good laugh on the way home. For God's sake, tell Marillion to lighten up. At the very least, uh, Steve Hogarth could have throttled the twat who kept screaming for Grendel with it, instead of ignoring the only bra Marillion are ever likely to have thrown at them. Nobby's typing school, graduate. I just had to write and tell everyone what a great band Compulsion are. I was fortunate enough to see them in Liverpool on May 27th and their show was excellent to say the least. The sound was great and the band's antics on stage were equally good. To top off a great night, I went backstage and met all the guys out of Compulsion. They are four of the nicest people you could wish to meet. They talked to me for ages and signed loads of stuff too. All I can say is catch Compulsion live if you can because you'll have an ass-kicking evening. Martin Hoff from Nantwich. After the success of Status Quo and Man United single Come On You Reds, is it true that Eric Cantona is recording a version of ACDC's Walk All Over You? Pete, the greatest air guitarist from Manchester. Short and Curlies. The letter from three Mr Big fans, issue 497, moaning about all the pathetic blokes at the front jumping up and down and pushing, spoiling their fun, tells me everything I need to know about Mr Big fans. Robbo from London. Thanks to Omkara for being totally psychotic and a bloody good band at the Bradford Rio on May 27th. Little Fran from Harrogate. Hey, listen up. I would like to lay down some serious respect to Ray and the downset dudes for a crushing set of Bradford Rio on May 31st and for autographing my fiver into the bargain. And also, much respect to Dog Eat Dog for being way cool and to Evan from Biohazard for watching my bike when I took the mic on Chamber Spins 3. You guys fucking ruled. I'd also like to thank everyone who was there having a good time and hopefully learning some important and heartfelt lessons. Glenn from Chesterfield. Donington 94, it rocked and it shocked. Donington 94, killer. Therapy, Sepultura, Terravision, Pantera, the best bands yet without a doubt. Thanks to the organisers for bringing uh, Donington for us. The fans, an absolutely fantastic day of metal and moshing. I hope there'll be a Donington 95. It would be a sin for them not to be. And let those in charge make note of my excellent suggestions for the lineup. Main stage, Paradise Lost, Ozzy Osbourne, Skid Row, Pearl Jam, Carcass. Second stage, Hull, Rollins Band, Alice in Chains, Obituary, The Almighty, Rage Against the Machine. Fucking rocking lineup, eh? What do you other metalheads who read the big ring finger these fucking brilliant suggestions? Let's hope that Reading will be as good as this. Jimmy from Battle. I just want to say that Extreme played brilliantly at Donington before everyone said they had to prove a point. So now after that brilliant set, I think they've proved it. Don't you? And I think the people that were watching thought so too, judging by the response they gave them. Now, hopefully all the people who are slagging them off will give them a chance because they deserve it. They've proved that they can still kick ass. Well done, Extreme. Jen, their number one fan. This letter is written to the inconsiderate git who tried to spoil Donington 94 for us. Not only did they steal our leather jackets, ghetto blaster, camera, fags, and clothes whilst we were asleep, but they also left a massive ship by the car door. Thanks a lot. Anyway, apart from that, Donington was excellent. 
How about a three-day festival next year? Lisa, Kate, Emma, Dan, Adrian and Mike from Hayward's Heath. P.S. Hi to everyone we met. I thought the idea of Donington having another stage with extra bands was great. Though, why not put two stages together and save people having to move from one end of the site to the other? To be honest, you'd have been better staying with a small stage this year due to the shit on the main one. Pride and Glory were a good idea, but Therapy were just a second-rate punk band. As for Sepultura and Pantera, it sounded like they both played the same set. I bet everyone walked away from the set whistling those catchy tunes. Not. Poor old Extreme didn't have a hope and went down like a fart in a spacesuit. At least Aerosmith would save the day. Well, apart from playing Kings and Queens in the wrong key and Monkey on My Back at the wrong speed, they were good. But Terrorvision and Wild Hearts and Skin were the real bands of the day. See you next year. Lionel Blair's hairpiece. Many thanks to Sepultura for an amazing set at Donington. Every song was thoughtless and Kayavas was unbelievable. I'm sure everyone who was at Donington would agree that they sounded more powerful than any other band on the bill, excluding Aerosmith, of course. Sepultura, thank you for making my day. Lisa Parry from Preston. Donington 94. Fucking oops. Bleep. Excellent. Steven Tyler's toothbrush from Colchester. Ill communication. And on the subject of Donington, we come to the 20-page poster pullout. That is a lot of posters. I think it's a poster for pretty much every band that played. Um, also, in between this, they speak to uh, some of the bands that played and how they felt it went, starting with Biohazard. Yeah, there was chaos at Donington when Biohazard's second stage performance turned into a mini riot. What happened? And was the new second stage a success? Paul Rees gets the lowdowns from the bands who played there. Well, the Monsters of Rock is all over for another year, and after all the speculation, the event's inaugural second stage proved to be something of a rip-roaring success with the Donington crowd. Thousands of people trekking across the site to watch the Wild Hearts, Terrorvision, Skin, Biohazard, Cry of Love and Head Swim strutting their stuff. Sadly, it was also the scene of the day's one controversial moment. The organisers pulling the plug on Biohazard set after the Brooklyn Quartet invited fans onto the stage. A traditional part of any biohazard show, it nonetheless prompted a heated response from the second stage's security staff. In the aftermath, there were rumours of fights between the band and security personnel. In addition, it was also alleged that Biohazard had wrecked their dressing room before leaving for another festival in Germany. Speaking from his home in Brooklyn, New York, Biohazard drummer Danny Schuler had this to say about the incident. We know that a couple of people died at Donington a few years ago, so the security is very worried about it happening again and with good reason, but my take on the whole thing is that they weren't really informed on what kind of performance Biohazard do, and they weren't prepared to deal with it. If they'd let, left it to us, we could have dealt with it just fine. We just did 40-something shows before that and we didn't have a problem. We have our own security person to deal with it and nobody gets hurt. I just feel that if they would have chilled out for about another 30 seconds, we would have got the thing under control. Were you told before the event not to encourage anyone from the audience to get on the stage? If they told us that we couldn't do the usual biohazard show, we would have told them fuck you and fuck your festival, we don't change our fucking show for anybody. But no, they didn't tell us about our show. In view of the fact that two people were killed at Donington in 1988, wasn't it potentially dangerous to encourage another crush towards the stage? We weren't going to let it get out of hand. We played the Dynamo Festival for 75,000 people last year where we had a whole lot more people on stage and nobody got hurt. We tell people all the time, look, Take care of yourselves and everybody else because we're all in this together. For the most part, the kids have shown that they can police themselves. What happened when the plug was pulled on your set? The security rushed on and started manhandling the kids off the stage, which was something we didn't want to see. We told them straight out to turn the microphones back on so we could ask the kids to get off the stage quietly. 
Instead, they started throwing people off the stage and it almost caused a fight between the band and the security, which was something we didn't want to happen either. Were any punches thrown between the band and the security? Things got a little tense, but I don't think there was actually a physical confrontation. It stopped before it exploded. I mean, we were freaking out. We were up on stage playing this prestigious festival for all these great people who'd been really good to us, and 10 minutes into it, they pulled a plug. We felt fucking terrible, you know? My first thought was not for me or Biohazard, but they'd ruined it for the people who wanted to see the band. Several witnesses have claimed that the band effectively trashed their dressing room as soon as they'd left the stage. Well... Things got kind of tense. A couple of things happened, but it's not something I want to comment on. We were very pissed off. Did you speak to the Donington promoters? One of the stage managers told us that they'll never have us at another festival there ever again. That was all I heard. They rushed us out of there as soon as we were off stage. We didn't even have time to wipe the sweat off before we were on our way to Germany. When we left, we were very upset, to the point of tears. We felt like all those kids who wanted to see us had been let down. We're going to try and make it up to all those people somehow, and that's all we can say. Naturally, there are two sides to every story. According to Stuart Galbraith, a spokesman for Donington Promoters NTP, of course we were fully aware of what sort of show Biohazard played. We wouldn't have booked them otherwise. On the other hand, we're also responsible for the safety of 60,000 people on the day. There were too many people on the stage when Biohazard were playing and the situation wasn't safe. That's why it was stopped. And the band played on. There were, of course, five other bands playing on Donington's inaugural second stage on June the 4th. So what did they make of the day itself? The Biohazard Incident and their own reviews in the Big Kerrang. For the second time, gentlemen please. The Wild Hearts. They came, they saw, they conquered. Upon the Big Kerrang's Paul Travers in his review of the Wild Hearts Donington set, they also buggered off without saying a word to anybody about it. Terrorvision's Lee Marklou on bass. Donington, how was it for you? Never changes really, does it? I've been to the likes of Reading in the past few years and there's people posing and being cool, but Donington's still about leather jackets and big fucking barrels of beer. I was really glad to see that it's still got that nice sort of heavy rockness about it. Your Big K review said Terravision were about as refreshing as a wheelbarrow full of opal fruits. Is that good or bad? Oh cool, the fiver's in the post. Actually, it's a real anti-climax when you come off stage, especially when you do such a short set, you don't feel like you've done a gig. I think we're only just starting to realise how well we did. The second stage, success or failure? I think it worked, and as far as I know of the other bands, uh, none of the other bands overlapped either. It was pretty well organised. The biohazard incident? I thought maybe it was the security that had problems, not understanding the biohazard ethic or something. I heard their dressing room window go through, which I thought was quite cool. It certainly fired us up anyway. Made me laugh as well. The other bands? I saw sort of bits and pieces of bands rather than um, whole sets. We were doing this interview of a French magazine when biohazard were on, so I missed them completely. Aerosmith sounded really good. Quite worryingly tight. In fact, I also saw a bit of the Wild Hearts. My baby is a head fuck and I really enjoyed head swim. The schmoozing? There was a definite lack of schmoozing being done on the second stage. There were no loud Americans rushing about apart from Biohazard. It's quite disturbing when you look around and realise that you're probably the most well-known people there. Would you do it all again? Maybe in two or three years if we haven't spontaneously combusted by then. Skin Neville MacDonald vocals. Donington, how was it for you? Oh, it was great. A really good day. Great atmosphere, great vibe, just playing in front of that many people was quite an experience. The crowd really seemed to go for it. I did see a few su suspicious containers heading towards the stage, but they never quite made it, thank God. Your Big K review said Skinner a mediocre talent for turning Unbelievable into a lumbering cod metal anthem. EMF should have them tarred and feathered. Fucking hell, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? The guy's entitled to his opinion, but I think we'd rather go with the public's opinion. 
It doesn't bother me that people dislike us. We're not trying to be a trendy band. The second stage, success or failure. I thought it worked. The amount of people who were watching the bands was phenomenal. The biohazard incident. We were in our dressing room at the time. There was this crash and this uh, foot went through the window. It was quite funny, really. The other bands. I listened to most of the bands from the backstage area because we were doing interviews and shit for most of the day. I did go up front and see Aerosmith for a while, though. That was great. The schmoozing. Not a lot of serious schmoozing was done, I'm afraid to say. We were shooting the video for our next single, Tower of Strength, so we spent a lot of time just messing around with that. We had a few beers backstage, but that was it, really. Would you do it all again? Yeah, I would. It was a bit nerve-wracking to kick off with, but the whole thing was quite an experience. Head swim, Nick Watts, keyboards. Donington, how was it for you? Fucking brilliant. We reckon there were about 15 to 20,000 people there when we went on. Fortunately, we played a really good gig and we were really happy with it. We were slightly disappointed that there was no women's underwear being thrown on stage. It was all chocolate and bottles of beer or piss. Your Big Krang review said, Headswim play half an hour of nice songs at us and little else. Just managing to keep their heads above water. Not waving, but drowning. Bollocks. The second stage, success or failure. It definitely worked. There were never two bands playing at the same time, so it's got to be good. You're getting more bands and better value for money. The Biohazard Incident, that was complete madness. I saw a little bit of them from a particularly dangerous position standing between the stage and the barricades. It all suddenly went off, so I had to help in dragging people out from the front. The other bands, Biohazard, bit of television and some of the Wild Hearts as well. I didn't see anything on the main stage apart from a tiny glimpse of Pantera. The second stage seemed much more fun. The schmoozing, we just sort of hung out in our hospitality bit and had a few beers. I spoke to Lee Markley from Terrorvision and he's a really nice guy. And the Hammond organ player from Skin was around as well. Would you do it all again? We'd definitely go back there next year if they'd have us. A little bit higher up the bill, hopefully. We now come to singles and this week's new singles are reviewed by Jason Arnop. First single this week is Green Day with their single Long View on Reprise. San Diego punks with a singer who sounds bizarrely like a cockney geezer. They like their snot British, these lads. Interesting to hear a Yank adopt our phrasing for a change and Green Day's heady guitar rush is perfectly enjoyable, but not yet calls to hang the flags out. Next single is Terrorvision with their single Middleman on Total Vegas EMI. Sadly, Middleman is possibly the least exciting thing the Bradford boys have done. That usual creative spark has been numbed into submission. The B-side Iggy Pop and Cheap Trick covers are reasonable enough, but hardly justify an outlay of $3.99. Stiff Little Fingers with their single harp on Castle. An irritating folk acoustic track, even more irritating when it starts to catch in the memory. The B-sides are 11-year-old demos, but an improvement. Single of the week this week is Prong with their single Snap Your Fingers, Snap Your Neck on Epic. Beyond Far Beyond Driven, Prong, or rather Epic, finally get it together to release a single backup for the incredible Cleansing album, and you really can't get much better than Prong 1994 if you're after Neutron Star Riffage. This is, quite simply, heavy fucking metal. The B-sides are the title tracks from the New Yorkers Beg to Differ and Prove You Wrong albums, plus the track Another Worldly Device, which lashes out with the best riffs you'll hear all year. Snap your wallet open. We now come to this week's cover stars, Punk and Disorderly, Slayer, are back. And with new drummer Paul Bostaff powering Kerry King's killer punk metal riffs, the LA Fresh Kings' forthcoming album Divine Intervention is their most brutal since the classic Reign in Blood. Stefan Shirazi cops an exclusive earful of the new Slayer material and wonders, 
Do these guys eat animals' heads for breakfast? Have Slayer still got it? The question's been on every serious metalhead's lips for a couple of years now. Pantera have scored a platinum US number one album. Slayer never did. Yet without Slayer, a whole generation of bands wouldn't be cranking out the levels of oral aggression that are now becoming commonplace in music. Metallica, of course, opened up the world's ears. Slayer, however, made the greatest, fastest, most intense and timeless punk metal album of all time with 1986's Reign in Blood, a classic album that no reader of these pages should be without. It's now been four years since the good but more measured seasons in the abyss. Why? Have Slayer been fumbling for inspiration? Was the split from death beat drummer Dave Lombardo crippling them? Well, they all tapped out. Rick Rubin's two black dreadlock dogs are racing around the LA record plant control room, hyper, speeding, unable to stop. I told them they were coming down to hear the Slayer album. They started smoking angel dust and getting all wild, Rubin grinned. Producer and head of Slayer's record company, American Recordings, Rubin has just finished playing a bunch of new songs from the forthcoming Slayer album, working title, Divine Intervention. I am speechless, dumbfounded, delighted, I want to run with the dogs. I'm also a touch embarrassed to have never thought that Slayer might have lost their intensity because this is extreme, maximised Slayer. You want speed? This is energised punk metal aggression and rage, the kind of stuff Slayer's reputation is built on. Ruben laughs as well he might. The bearded one knows what a return to form this is. Ruben's harsh, cold, raw production is the extra touch that is so necessary at this point in time. Does this stuff make Ruben feel satanic? Nope. Violent? Nope. Does it make you drive faster? Oh, yes, he laughs. Mind Murder, a frenzied new cut, shows just how much Lombardo's replacement Paul Bostaff has added to the music. Bostaff mixes it up with an array of fills and some astoundingly tight double bass work, the likes of which Slayer fans felt only Lombardo could pull off. Wrong. Bostaff is nothing short of extraordinary. All song titles are liable to change before the album's late summer release, but the working titles include Serenity and Murder, Divine Intervention, Ditto Head, Mind Control, SS3 and 213. The latter is flesh-eating serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment number. And on every track, the guitars of Jeff Hanneman and Kerry King wail, cry and riff demonically like the devil's own dueling banjos. It's good to know we're still able to do it, chuckles King. When I listen to the record, I get very excited. Every time I come in here, I get a hard on laughs Ruben, leaving the studio lounge to continue a mix in progress. King slouches with one eye on the TV. Hanneman speaks to his girlfriend on the phone. Things don't change in Slayer country from one year to the next, except for King's newly shaven, tattooed head. Slayer are still all NFL shirts, multicolour shorts, chips, beer and TV. No hassle, no self-inflicted pressures. If infuriating, Slayer's great strength is their ability to look only within their little circle and work at their own lazy pace. I put it to them that seeing Pantera hit number one might have put the thing that made them pull their fingers out of their asses and start working on such ferocious music. Nope, Hanneman replies, Heineken in hand. I'm not too, too worried about Pantera or any other band. We do what we want. It's not a challenge like you're making out. Maybe in the very recesses of subconscious, but I never consciously thought that about uh, what anyone else was doing. I don't care. What I care about is making an album that I like, that we like. That's always my main concern. How much better is it looking behind you and seeing Bostaff really driving things hard? We don't have to look behind us, chuckles King. Ouch. I remember Dave Lombardo fearing that he was losing his double kick perfection and feeling that his enthusiasm was ebbing from time to time. Clearly Bostaff has given Slayer a real shot in the arm. Says Hanneman, Paul's general involvement is big. He always has suggestions about trying new things so in that sense he was much more involved than Dave was. Those double bass punches are all over the place as though Bostaff wants to show that they're back in Slayer music with a vengeance. 
Without a doubt, affirms King, and we're the band that has got to do it. That's what we're here for. Yes, indeed. Total power is expected of Slayer, yet for the first time in 10 years, the band have had their backs to the wall. Four years since the last studio album, have Slayer been feeling under pressure? Hanneman. Well, the switch between Dave and Paul took some time. Then we went out and did a tour with Paul. And we do like our off time. We just sit around watching hockey games and dumb shit like this on TV. King. And it seems like we all move house after every album. Hanneman. People may not believe it, but we don't worry about what's going on out there. We just hear, time to do a record? Okay, cool. We just do not care about other bands, whether they're getting bigger than us or not. Last year, Slayer teamed up with Ice Motherfucking T on the Judgment Night soundtrack. They cut a medley of free tracks by seminal UK punk herberts, The Exploited. King chuckles. There are some serious punk parts on the new album, but you know, the cool thing, nobody's doing it like this right now. Everybody abandoned it, but we didn't. It's what we do best, and that's probably why it's found its way back on the new record. When I've read magazines and their top 10 fresh albums of all time, Rain in Blood is always number one, and our other stuff is six, seven, and eight, which is why I wrote the new stuff like Rain in Blood. I like it, and we're the only band left that does it well. Kerry wrote most of the album Furthers Hanneman. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and the next thing we knew, Kerry had finished the album, and it was good stuff. If I didn't like the stuff, it wouldn't be on the album. At the time of writing, I was very unfocused. I was thinking about where I wanted to go, and the next thing, Kerry uh, had got it all down. It's funny, Kerry's got the more punk style of writing, but I'm the one who's always been heavily into punk. And I write the more moody stuff, which is what he listens to. King. We were fighting around with five songs for the longest time, and I kept on thinking, Jeff's going to start writing stuff soon. When I finally figured it out that he wasn't, I finished writing the rest of the stuff in two months. I was waiting for that extra input just to get a different perspective, but then I realised there would be no different perspective. Hanneman and King burst out laughing. In the past, such a situation would probably have forced each band member into their own little bitter corner. Instead, Slayer are happier than they've been for a very long time. When Paul joined the band and everything worked, it was a big fucking relief, size Hanneman. We knew there wouldn't be this tension all the time. Towards the end, we had different ideas to Dave. Different ways of thinking, politics, ideals, life in general. Musically, things were never really a problem because Dave was a good drummer. But there's life to deal with too. Was there ever a time when Slayer were thinking about calling it up? No, they snap unanimously. No. King, we were just trying to figure out how to make things better. You're on the road. You know, this is what you have to do. So how can you fix the problem? Hanneman. We've all learned from each other and we've all changed over the years. We've had some problems with each other in the beginning, but you learn to deal with them. You learn to deal with people and personalities. Once you figure someone out, then you know in certain situations they're going to do this and that. But somewhere along the line with Dave, that attitude didn't work. Tom Araya, Slayer's Chilean bassist vocalist, is a reluctant interviewee. But as ever, he's mellow and pleasant, the antithesis of his onstage rage. Leaning back into a lounge chair, Tom laughs off the, the suggestion that Slayer were under intense pressure to make a great record this time out. Nah, he smiles. No pressure. When Kerry started to come up with the stuff, we all knew it was cool. There's never a set plan for us and I don't see things as competitive. With regards to other bands, we won't ever put ourselves under that pressure. We just came up with songs we like. They happen to be fast, heavy and fast. What does Tom think of Paul Bostaff? Overall, I think it was time for Slayer to re-energise. And Paul certainly helped us do that. We knew we needed to do it and it just happened very naturally. And Rick Rubin? Does it help relax the band to have Rubin in the producer's chair for a fifth consecutive time? It's cool to have his perspective. He's not here consistently, so everything always sounds pretty fresh to him. He gives his input, we step aside and think about it and go from there. Araya is Slayer's chief lyricist and there are some seriously heavy lyrics on the new songs. Mind Murder is about the different sides of man. What makes one person kill someone and another suppress that urge? The lyric says, Instinct spares no one, destroys the human heart. The taste of blood can rip your soul apart. 
In other words, when someone kills, it eventually becomes an addiction. That's one angle. Then there's the action-reaction thing, where it's in any of us. Instinct spares no one. What enables us to control that other side? I'm not sure. We probably have a higher sense of being, and that doesn't mean anything except that there are some people who are a little more senseless than others. It could be a mental thing. It could be that you have a deficiency in some chemical. We can find excuses, but at the same time, there are no excuses. A killer's a killer. On Serenity and Murder, Araya crawls inside the mind of a multiple killer. It's about a distorted mind. He's sitting contemplating what he's done and being peaceful about it. I read a book written by a doctor called How We Die, and it's all about his own thoughts on death. There was a chapter called Murder and Serenity, and it said that no matter how violent someone's death, there's always a peaceful calm about them. I found that very interesting. I'm hoping we can do a video for it because I wrote the song with a visual in my head and I'd like the chance to put it to film. If it gets done, which I think it will, then you'll like it. When you get up in the morning, make some coffee, settle down with a newspaper and read headlines about someone who's killed 12 people and has body parts in their kitchen. Is your first reaction one of fascination or of disgust? Sick. This guy's sick. But then at the end of the reaction comes the question, why? And I'm not the only one who asks. Will there come a time when you conclude that there is no why and you give up trying to find it? No, because my curiosity will always be there. I'll always read about it to try and learn more. While Harvey Cartel and Robert De Niro receive critical acclaim for their portrayals of violent people, Slayer are always cited as a terrible influence on young metal fans. Divine intervention with its graphic realism and ultraviolence won't ease the situation. We're entertained as two sides, Hanneman. I don't understand why musicians always cop the worst shit. Well, it's like this, explains the record uh, plant's assistant, busily setting places for the band to eat some Italian food. People don't think that you guys are pretending. They think you are what you create. I mean, I meet you guys and immediately it's in my mind. You are Slayer. I'm not judgmental, but when I told people Slayer were here and they're really nice, they looked at me and said, nice? Don't they eat animal heads for breakfast? Having heard Divine Intervention, even I'm not sure anymore. Pretenders to Slayer's crown prepare to wither and die from the fallout. You start salivating now. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to records, and my oh my, Kerrang! really loved themselves this week. The main album and first album reviewed this week is by Various, and the album is titled Kerrang! The Album. What Kerrang! have done here is rather than getting one of their own reviewers to review it, they have got Michael McKeegan who is the bass player in Therapy, to review it for them. He gives disc 1 4Ks and disc 2 3Ks. And his review begins. So, the question must be asked. Has Kerrang! The Ultimate Heavy Metal Magazine produced the Ultimate Heavy Metal Compilation? Read on. Basically, what we have here is a double CD or cassette set spanning the rather wonderful world of metal over the past 25 years. Rather than attempt a comprehensive overview, the compilers, clever buggers that they are, have chosen a theme per disc. Disc 1 is subtly titled Contemporary Chaos and features some of the newer acts on the rock scene. I reckon this is a more exciting disc as it shows how these acts have moulded trad metal into a more innovative and undiverse beast. Check how Prong and Clawfinger have embraced sampling technology dabbling in industrial territory, whilst Pantera and Sepultura have taken the basic fresh chug and ground technique to frightening extremes. Of course, with the ever-lovable Wild Hearts with their plucky 1-2-3-4 attitude and two of the Seattle Godfathers, Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. One drawback, I suppose, is the availability of most of the tracks here. 
Most have been singles or on recent albums, so most fans should have them anyway. Another way of looking at it is that it's an opportunity to get the cream of the current new metal crop in one fell swoop. Moving on to disc 2, we find the self-explanatory Kerrang! Classics. As with any compilation, there's always going to be a few bands and personal favourites missing, so hats off as there's no obvious omissions except Lizzie, Maiden, Raven, etc. as Michael delves, uh, delves into his own metal graveyard. Nice to see the inclusion of some great live Judas Priest and UFO classics, as they're much more spirited than their flat-sounding studio versions. Some great stuff on here though. One grade A turkey has to be Ugly Kid Joe's soulless version of Cats in the Cradle. Explain. The packaging is a bit uninspiring, unfortunately. I think if this was the first introduction to any of the bands included, I'd want more than a tiny black and white group shot and a publishing credit. Another gripe is the lack of female or coloured acts on here, just to show metal isn't a white boys only club. Hello, die cheerleader on living colour. But roll on volume 2 to correct all that. All in all, nothing too groundbreaking or off the wall. Nothing from the mighty earache or touch and go labels. But hopefully value for money. Let's keep the RRP down, eh? And perfect for anyone too lazy to do their own party tapes. The next album reviewed is Betty by Helmet. This album gets 4Ks and that's killer. The album is reviewed by Don K. With an album titled Betty and the opening cut called Wilma's Rainbow, you might think that Helmet have a fixation on the female characters from the US cult Stone Age cartoon series The Flintstones. But Helmet usher in their own Stone Age with their third album. Betty is stuffed to the max with riffs hewn out of solid granite. Each song a monolithic testimony to the band's aggression, craft and precision. Working with producer T-Ray, who also collaborated with the band on their Judgment Night soundtrack contribution, Helmet fashioned a sound that's even bigger and more organic than 1992's Meantime. John Stania's big bass drum and Henry Bogdan's rumbling bass lay down the powerhouse grooves while Paige Hamilton and recent recruit Rob Echevera churn out chords the size of boulders. But unlike Meantime, which sounded almost clinical and sterile at certain points, Betty moves with a fluid grace that adds new depth to Helmet's already unique perspective. Vocally, Hamilton has also expanded his parameters. Songs like I Know and Vaccination showcase his trademark primal scream, while first single Biscuits for Smut features a weird mechanised performance. Beautiful Love is uncommonly wistful, while The Silver Hawaiian is unlike anything Helmet have done before. It's a funky, greasy hip-hop slide that's equally hilarious and sinister. Betty keeps Helmet's crushing sound intact, even making it heavier while allowing the band to stretch out and apply a few new twists to their instantly recognisable sound. The result is one of 94's finest agro-rock releases, as Fred Flintstone might say, Yabba Dabba Do. The next rec record reviewed is Little Angels with their album Too Posh to Mosh, still makes me laugh, and Too Good to Last, <laughs> 3Ks. Uh, and this review is by Mike Peak. Let's face it, in 1994, the words cool and little angels are as comfortable next to each other as a hungry spider and a fly with no wings. Dogged by image problems, record company hassle and the ever-changing tastes of fickle metal fans, little angels were as likely to claw their way out of rock's chasm of cred as Black Sabbath with a broken arm. They had their chance, they came, they saw, and uh, then they split. Ironically, the three new tracks in this album, All Roads Lead to You, Forbidden Fruit and The Fine I Want Love, are perhaps the angels' best in a long while. Bright, sassy and fucking out there, they are a fitting farewell from a brand, band of perennial underdogs. But Little Angels have become in excess or Robert Palmer and have little real relevance in today's world of motherfucking metal. Neither does the breathe-on uh, version of the band's mini-LP debut, Too Posh to Mosh, which completes this package. 
At times, it's stupendously bad. Check out the preposterous keyboard solo on No More Whiskey, and it just sounds plain dated. The Angels have at least had the decency to bow out with some thought for their many followers, and indeed this record is of no interest to anyone but those who helped push Jam to the top of the charts. Sadly, however, to the casual onlooker, Too Posh is little more than an average epitaph to an average band, and these days, as Toby, Mark, Bruce, Jimmy and Rich have realised, a little ain't enough. Next review is for the band called Stanford Prison Experiment with their album Stanford Prison Experiment. This album gets 4Ks and is reviewed by Paul Brannigan. See the guy at the cash register with a balaclava and a three-piece suit? That's Mr. US Music Industry 1994, that is. Social conscience with a chunky minor chord repetitive riff. Sir, I think we have that in your size. Try the eponymous debut from Stanford Prison Experiment, comrade. Yeah, it's package rebellion, but at least they mean it. We still need our heroes to kick against the pricks. Protest by proxy has never been easier. This LA quartet hang out a lot with quicksand, so who's ripping off who? Who cares? Stanford Prison Experiment deal in the same lurching riff gridlocks precision blast of snub-nosed intensity, and they're good at it. Bassist Mark Fraser and drummer Davey Latter streamline their rhythmic verve and guitarist Mike Stark and vocalist Mario Jimenez turn in solid shows. The songs are uniformly impressive, equal parts muscle and melody, no all-out bludgeon, Disbelief, written apology, and super monkey rage with smiling faces, iron fisted power undiminished by tunefulness. 94 has seen a succession of sparkling Yankor releases. Stanford Prison Experiment have just lengthened the list. The next album reviewed is Suicidal for Life by Suicidal Tendencies. This gets 2Ks and is reviewed by Don K. What the fuck happened to Suicidal Tendencies? From top to bottom, from the opening invocation to the closing benediction, Suicidal for Life sounds like a record made by a band bankrupt of ideas and enthusiasm. There seems to be some kind of attempt to rekindle the band's former aggression by including the word fuck in the first four song titles, but the songs themselves merely come off as warmed over suicidal retreads, indistinguishable from each other. The riffs that Rocky George plays here could have been played in his sleep. Even when Mike Muir sings on a faster, heavier songs like Don't Give a Fuck and Fucked Up, Just Right, it lacks the conviction of earlier gems like You Can't Bring Me Down, and even Gotta Kill Captain Stupid from the Art of Rebellion album. And on other tracks like the horrendous What Else Could I Do, his softer, almost simpering vocals come across as little more than a parody of his former pitbullish glory. It's a crying shame that a once electrifying band has lost its energy and commitment to stronger material. Suicidal for Life may well sound the band's death knell. And finally reviewed this week is a record called Looking Glass Self by a band called Snapcase. This gets 3Ks and is reviewed by Morat. No doubt the same shattered looking glass on the front of Black Flag's damaged opus. In fact, this Buffalo bass five piece seemed to have a good deal of healthy influences. They come across like a car crash involving clutch, helmet and Metallica. While this is hardcore through and through, there's an extremely metal chugga-chug-chug guitar that holds it all together and adds an interesting layer of power. However, it would have been better with a heavier production and a couple of really memorable songs. After three plays, it still doesn't do more than bounce pleasantly off your skull without leaving a lasting impression. Snapcase will do much better than this. Chart Attack now, and the number one single this week is still Since I Don't Have You, Guns N' Roses. The number one album is Suits by Fish. Wow. And the number one in the indie metal is Suits by Fish. Blimey. There are no reader charts or charts from anyone else. So, um, 
that's the end of Quran for this week. Thanks. See ya. Uh, <laughs> on next in on in next week's issue, the world's greatest heavy metal magazine is 500 issues old. Come on and celebrate. We're celebrating with a 100-page monster issue and a cast of thousands featuring Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, Metallica, Iron Maiden and more. Plus, the Great British Heavy Metal Awards. The winners, the losers, the boozers, the schmoozers. The full star-studded scam on Karang's triumphant Great British Heavy Metal Awards. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Uh, as always, if you would like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be wonderful. No worries if not. Um, and until next week, I hope you all look after yourself out there and have a good week. And next week, we'll be back with the 500th issue of Kerrang! Wowzers. See you all next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye bye.